We all have, I'm sure, some experience of a mother in our life, and it never quite hits us, the sacrifice that they have made, because that's just what moms do. We've always known them to be somewhat sacrificing. Um, but I think perhaps maybe it is through experiencing motherhood uh, through a peer, through my wife, that has helped me to appreciate more of my mother and mothers in general. I will forever remember 1992 seeing a young lady up on the stage at the church I was attending playing the viola, among with other stringed instruments. I admit it was probably a little hard to worship in those days, because I saw a joy in her eyes, in her clear vision, a bounce in her step, a love that was evident, a trust that she had in the Lord. I saw then a hunger that she had to know the Lord that seemed to be greater than a hunger to know a guy, and that attracted me. But what was amazing still is after observing her for a couple years, getting to know her, then saying, I love you, to her, knowing full well that she had understanding that when I said that, it was to say, I want to make you my wife. And then through distance, waiting until we could get married, 97 Enjoying those two years, being in seminary, started pastoring at a church, getting to know her, and then in 2000, our lives get rocked, and in seven successive years, we see four children come into that relationship. And it was an amazing thing to know that somehow in God's heavenly throne room, he says, let there be. And that same word that causes a universe to come into existence caused a soul to come to be. Four times. And I watched this woman, who I could relate with to some degree, turn into something that I couldn't really relate to, a mother. The sacrifice that is there, that seeing these eyes of joy and peace sometimes flicker with pain, and tears, and sometimes frustration, but then to resettle back again into trust. That is an amazing thing to see and behold, and it's a unique perspective, one I couldn't appreciate as a son who was the recipient. Why do I say that? Well, I want to take you to Proverbs chapter 1, and I want you to consider what Solomon had to say 
and even reflections that he had on a woman in his life, his mother. And then you see later on another writer at the end of the chapter, the words of King Lumiel reflect on a woman. I think it's totally appropriate on this day to talk about this. And what's amazing when you read this, it, you know, we don't understand kings. We, we don't have kings in our society. Even uh, you know, Queen Elizabeth is not necessarily our queen. I've never known a king in England uh, in my lifetime. And so this, this concept is a little foreign, but here Solomon writes as a king. You see in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, he is the king of Israel, which basically means to say he was a great king, and therefore uh, everyone bowed in his presence. People listened to the king, and with a word, this man could cause life and death. But yet, when it came to his mother, it's interesting how he related to his mother. You see this example in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. His mother was Bathsheba. You remember that story, Bathsheba? That's, that's the one. The scandalous uh, relationship, the affair, adultery. And out of this relationship comes Solomon. And Bathsheba was always known in the Bible, not necessarily as the wife of David, but he was, she was always referenced, yeah, that was the one that was the wife of Uriah. Just always let us know that God never saw the end of that relationship in her lifetime. But yet, in 1 Kings chapter 2, 19, Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him. The king arose to meet her, bowed before her, and sat on his throne, and then he had a throne set for the king's mother, and she sat on the right. Isn't that interesting? This king that knows this loyalty, that knows this reverence, when his mom comes, he bows to her and sets her on the throne next to him. So just to give an idea of that type of relationship, I want us to read verse 7, 8, 9. And then we're going to go to the end of the book, 30 chapters later, so just keep your finger there, and we're going to read the end of the book, reading verse 30 and 31 of Proverbs 31. So let's stand in honor of this being God's word. God has chosen, though Solomon was a sinful man, as they all were, God has preserved this and said, let us remember this as his words. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And then at the end of the, chap- of the book, Proverbs 31 Verse 30 and 31. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 
Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You may be seated. So this gives us some basic ideas of what it is to be a woman of influence, whether you're a mother or not. And I would say some of these things certainly apply to all of us, regardless of gender. But first thing I would want you to understand as we read this, where does this basis of influence come? First, when we read this, what is implied, especially as we read verse 8 and 9, is that God intended the father and mother to be the first source of instruction. It's implied within this. He, he says simply, listen, son, to your father's instruction. One of the temptations of the young is not to listen. <laughs> not to listen. And so you have to say their name. Canaan. Evan. Carissa. Molly. Do you hear me? I need to have some sense of acknowledgement that you heard me. All right? So that is the temptation of the young, is to disregard the voice entirely. Selective hearing. Of course, we know, uh, from my understanding, uh, men have this same ability. Um, I don't know what they're talking about there. <laughs> uh, but this, this is the temptation of the young. But then you see, as we keep on going, forsake not your mother's teaching. The temptation as the children grow older is, yes, they've heard it because they kept repeating it over and over and over again. But somewhere along the way, as they go on with life, leave home, is to say, uh, you know, I know it, but now I forsake it. Now I leave it behind with the home I grew up in. And so that is the temptation as children get older is to forsake it, no longer pay attention. But regardless of whatever, it's still implied within this, is that from God's perspective, the matter of instruction happens at home with mom and dad. I mean, you think about the very few things that they know involuntarily. I mean, we know how to breathe. We know how to blink our eyes. We know involuntary movements. But, you know, all the other stuff is going to be taught. Eating. Walking, talking, and then you spend for the rest of your life how to talk and how you walk and how to think. And so all of this is being done through a father and through a mother. And so uh, we see this from the very beginning in Genesis 1 when it says God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And how is this to be a fruitful earth filling place? Well between a man and a woman who cleave together as one. And the Bible goes on to emphasize that this cleaving is not to be put asunder uh, through the act of men. In fact, when Jesus was uh, challenged on that, he said, look, that was not the design. Divorce was not designed from God's beginning. Uh, it was because of the hardness of man's heart that God has made provisions for that. And so this is God's ideal from the very beginning is this a cleaving of a man and a woman together through which the earth would be filled. And so that is the tragedy of divorce and multitude of other things that we have created as time has gone on. 
And so it's God's idea and it's for God's glory. Solomon assumes that right here from the beginning. Uh, so uh, I want to start there. But we keep on reading. I'm going to find something else. The fear of God is the foundational and terminal point of instruction. All right? The fear of God is the foundational and terminal point of instruction. So uh, what do we mean by it? Well, we keep on reading here from the very first, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So it's the foundational point of instruction. So uh, you may know how to talk. You may know how to walk. You may know how to work and how to relate. But if you do not know the fear of the Lord, then all of the other how-tos become misunderstood or misapplied, misperceived. It's foundational. So you can know all the knowledge that is to be can known. But if you do not know the fear of the Lord, which is foundational, it makes us no more than idiots from God's perspective. And that's just, it's foundational. You've missed out on how to tie your shoe. You've missed out on how, the, how to know the alphabet. This is the foundational aspect of it. But not only is it the foundational aspect, it is the terminal point of knowledge. The fear of God. So, what does this mean? Well, wisdom is something I, I've kind of just bring up this, this definition. We've talked about this on Wednesday nights. Wisdom is the ability to see, enjoy, and apply the beauty of God's authority in every circumstance. Okay? The wisdom is the ability to see, enjoy, and apply the beauty of God's authority and every circumstance, okay? And, and all these words matter. You got to be able to see how beautiful God's authority is in the good and bad of life. And not only do you see it, then you also are going to enjoy it and apply what that means in your life. Uh, and so, uh, why does it say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? And the opposite of this, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, when we talk about fear, uh, we get confused because we often think of uh, the common understanding of the word of fear. And you see this in the Old Testament. It is the fear of being hurt. The dread of being hurt, right? Uh, so when we see lightning outside and we're outside, maybe playing golf or we're doing something, we should have a measure of fear. I can't avoid lightning. What do I do? I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. And so that is a, a one sense of fear. But it's not the fear that brings love. In fact, we see in 1 John that perfect love casts out all fear. And so when it talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about something else. And I would say it's not so much the dread of being hurt, but it's the fear of causing hurt. The fear of causing hurt. I, you know, it's funny when you get a letter from the U.S. government. It can mean any number of things. It could be the dread of being hurt. I got a letter from the U.S. government. I, what, does that mean, is this a subpoena? Um, that's, there, there's potential of being hurt, right? Uh, maybe summons for jury duty, okay? Or, or maybe you get a letter with a, an, an, uh, you know, their own personal uh, mail service called the police. I say, here we have a, a warrant for your arrest. Well, <laughs> that's also something you can dread being hurt. 
But what if you got a letter from the U.S. government? Uh, it's your tax return. You know, some people get those things. <laughs> uh, and you get this tax return, and, and we're going to pretend like these are the old days where you had to get it in letter. It wasn't direct deposit or any of that, you know, convenient stuff. But it's just a piece of paper with the U.S. government uh, stamped on there. And it once used to mean something entirely different where there's a dread of, oh, no. But now you have a letter, and in this letter it's certified, oh, let's say, uh, you know, things went really bad, $10,000. U.S. government said, we ever charged you $10,000. So, I have now a new type of fear. I see beauty in this letter. I see worth in this letter. You know one of the things so frustrating that could happen is you put it in your car, and you go, and through the course of the day, you go back to your car, and you think, where's that letter at? How could I lose just a piece of paper that now verifies that I can have $10,000, and now there's a new panic that sets in, is there not? I got to find that letter. There is the fear of causing hurt that meant this is going to be ten thousand dollars worth of value to me that now because of my oversight i've lost you see there's a new type of fear that is based in the worth of this letter no longer dread of being hurt but dread of causing hurt because now if i don't have ten thousand dollars man my family's not going to get some of the the benefits of this and so this is kind of what we're talking about here when we see the value of who god is See, when the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life, it is to open up your eyes to see how valuable God is, who Jesus Christ is, to see no longer the justice of God to be a terrifying thing alone, but to be something of which your heart rejoices in. Because the justice of God has brought Jesus into our life, and we see also the compassion of God, the love of God, beautifully intertwined together in one person in a rare combination that you will never see if you saw every person throughout history. You would never see such a combination of holiness and justice and love and compassion all wrapped up in one that brought him to his death on the cross for my sin. And these things Fill our heart with who God is. And so now there is a love of God. You see, one of the crucial components of being a follower of God is this concept of fear of God. The fear of God. You see, the fear of God is a holy fear. It is an inward condition of awe and amazement before the glory and wonder of and power, and grace of our God. It's, you see, God isn't just into external obedience. He is wanting an external obedience that overflows from an inward disposition toward God that is done by the Holy Spirit and the words of truth combined together. Why why is it so critical for us to be in the word of God daily? It is because daily I need a fresh how wonderful God is. You know why I need to be with you on Sunday morning to sing what we've just sung? 
because through your voices, uh, it is magnified to me the greatness of God. When I see an individual worshiping God, my Holy Spirit echoes within that. God's Holy Spirit echoes within that in my own heart to show the greatness of God. And so this is why corporate worship matters to us because it's a, a way for us to celebrate once again the greatness of who God is to let this start from the inside going out. So listen, uh, parents, moms, what we have to teach our children is how great our God is. How amazing he is. Will they see in the mothers and in the fathers and all of God a fear of God. Will they get that mom and dad do not want to cause harm to the glory of God? So how does this work? I think Colossians 3.22 is probably instructive here for us today. Uh, mothers, <laughs> Colossians 3.22 is addressed to slaves. Um, we would probably say in the modern day equivalent employee. Uh, we don't usually call people slaves anymore. But we do call them employees. But mothers, you probably have felt like this at some point. Um, and what I want to say to you that even if you feel like you are a slave, even if you feel like you're a bond servant to the home, a bond servant to these kids, uh, or a bond servant to your boss, do you know you can have joy? All day, if you let the fear of God be the force behind what you do. Colossians 3.22 says this, bondservants, I'm going to say moms, okay, let's just moms. Men, you can apply this to yourself, of course. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, would you really call your children earthly masters? Maybe in one sense, maybe in one sense, because they definitely dictate the activities of your day. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the Lord Christ. You see, when I read this, it lets me know that though your days may be filled with cleaning the floor or washing dirty noses, or it could be dealing with the insults of your child and they don't even know how they're insulting you, or maybe the fact that you've got a child that doesn't seem to acknowledge you as much as you want them to acknowledge you. And all of what you may be dealing with, it too can be worship. When you realize that I am operating and I'm doing, not out of the glory of my children or the glory of my family, the glory of my home, but I'm doing it out of the glory of God to whom I serve and I love him and he is wonderful to behold and my uh, soul satisfaction comes not from whether or not I get a Mother's Day note from my child, or, but because God is there, and I'm satisfied with Him there. This becomes worship. 
And that's good news for those of us who may be up to your knees in diapers. Because there's not any other options. But that also is worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Now let us purify ourselves from all contaminating things and, and perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. So here's Paul saying, you want to grow? You want to be part of human greatness? You want to reach the heights of holiness? You get there through the fear of the Lord. To acknowledge how wonderful he is. So, keep on reading here. We go to Proverbs. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Submission of children to the parents is a rewarding expression of honor to God. Being submitted to parents is a rewarding expression of honor to God. What does that mean? That also is worship. That also is worship, is to hear your parents say something, and you actually heard them, okay? You heard them say something, and you listened. And then you may say to yourself, I don't want to do that. I don't like doing that. But, it was mom who said it, and God created her, and God asked me to fear him, to acknowledge how great he is, to see the wonder of who he is, and if it means that I can express that wonder to him, let that be the drive to obey, not because the parents make sense. That's, that's just logic. That's just worshiping by logic. He's not asking us to worship by logic. He's asking us to worship by faith, which means sometimes things won't make sense. But we do it because out of God's authority and the greatness of who he is. Now, let me just qualify that by saying that if your parents ask you to do something that is in disobedience to God, you honor God. You honor God above and beyond all. Realizing that your parents are shadows that point to their God. Genesis chapter 29 verse 20 says, Jacob labored after Rachel for seven more years. Remember this is the story where Laban was uh, his desirable father-in-law, but he was a little bit of a scandal, uh, a scoundrel. And, and so he said, I'm going I'm to marry Rachel and, and uh, Laban reverses, uh, switches out the brides on the wedding day. <laughs> and the next morning, Jacob looked and said, behold, it was Leah. And so he was understandably very furious. And Laban understood, well, look, I needed to get Leah off first. If you want, Rachel, work seven more years. Genesis 29, 20 says, it says, Jacob labored after Rachel for seven years, but it seemed just like a few days because he loved her so. You see, this is how worship works. It was the joy of Rachel, it was what he was longing for that enabled him to endure seven more years, working 14 years for a scoundrel. All right, so maybe, maybe you as a child is thinking, well, my parents are scoundrels. You know, they're just like, they don't get it. They don't, they don't understand. 
That's not the motivation for your heart. The motivation for your heart is the beauty of who God is. You see, when there is a disobedience problem, the, the real root of it is that there is a worship problem. And so the heart has to be realigned with who the greatness of God is because somewhere, somehow, some other sub-God has stepped up that is so less greater than who God is and it's driving us. And so there's this idea that it creates competitive desires. Nathan Cole was a carpenter farmer from Connecticut. This is in 1740. And after hearing George Whitfield, famous revivalist who did much in shaping our country, maybe in ways you don't know. After hearing him, his heart was changed and was born again. He tells a story. He wrote it in a testimony. He's listening to the fields of Connecticut. He said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. My old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Then he goes on and says, now I had for some years a bitter prejudice against three scornful men that had wronged me. But now all that was gone away, clear, and my soul longed for them and loved them. Why? I knew now there was nothing that was sinful I could in any way bring into the presence of this great and wonderful God. He's not saying, oh, I guess I have to forgive these three guys. Well, I guess that's the price I have to pay if I want to go to heaven. All right, what do I have to do? It's not this grudging, all right, I guess I'll forgive them. But instead, it was this enraptured with the greatness of who God is, and he realized that his sin was grievous to this wonderful Lord that shook his heart. So we're not going around grudging in our obedience. He's saying, I used to hate these people. I had a bitter prejudice against these three men. But now that's gone away. So, young people, sometimes what the parents give you may be grievous to your soul, maybe as drudgery. But I would plead to you, see the greatness of who God is, so that once was drudgery can become a delight, because you're doing it out of the greatness of who God is. So let me just share with you, parents, if our instruction and our basic uh, foundation for teaching and the end goal of our teaching is that our children would one day fear God, do we show God as great? Do they see what is the greatest thing in our heart and life? And then, when we give commands... Be very careful with the commands we give because they are and they will be as the instructions of the Lord in that child's heart. So when that child disobeys, there has to be consequences. Our temptation is that we want to only give out consequences when we get appropriately frustrated. You know that line? All right. I had it. I had it up to here. Those who laughed have heard that before. And it's only then the consequences come out and we do so in anger. 
But what about when we gave that command the first time and the child disobeyed? Do we get, do we understand that they are disobeying not just our instructions, they are disobeying the instructions of God? So we don't give frivolous commands. But when the commands are given, there must be consequences. Do not wait till points of frustration. And then, as we keep on reading, not only is the submission of children to the parents a rewarding expression of honor to God, God sees us, He's aware, and He will reward. The woman who purposes to recognize God's authority in her life is of eternal worth. She is of eternal worth. And this is where we get to the last chapter. Uh, what you may not realize, Proverbs 31, when you begin with verse 10 through 31, it's an acrostic. And a Hebrew acrostic, you know, A, B, C, D, all stand for something. So this is a very poetic way of declaring with excellence the worth of a woman. And so here, that's happening. And to sum it all up is the last two verses and, and say, uh, this is a great study when he asks, what does it look like a woman who fears the Lord? Uh, and connect verses 10 through 29 with a woman who fears the Lord. And you'll see that this woman is not afraid. She's not afraid of the future. Why? Because she's fearing the Lord. She's got so much more authority than a government check for $10,000 to ensure her. And so she's not afraid of the future. Do you know how many, there's so many precious promises for those who fear the Lord. Let me just share a few of them. Psalm 25 verse 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, for he makes known to him his covenant. Psalm 31 verse 19, how abundant is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for those who fear thee, and wrought for those who take refuge in thee. Those who keep the fear of God before their eyes will not run from God, but will take refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 133, verse 11, As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Verse 13, As the father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Psalm 145, verse 19, he fulfills the desire of all who fear him. Psalm 147, verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. What I want to do is bring out the contrast with charm and beauty. This woman needs to be memorized. Because our world in America is teaching you something contrary. And is teaching you every day of your life, teaching you with almost every other image on media, that charm and beauty is everything. And that your worth is measured by your looks. In fact, now social media measures it. You take a selfie and you count how many people like it. Everywhere the women are turning, 
it is saying, charm and beauty is everything. A woman that looks beautiful will be praised. And that's why, women, we must memorize and let it sink to our soul, verse 30 and 31. Men, let this direct our eyes. Let this direct our eyes. Not just how they look in heels, are the shape of their curves, but what is the attitude of the heart? If we could see past the skin, past the hair, and certainly past the makeup, what is the condition of the soul? Because beauty is vain. It's like uh, the image here is those little bubbles you blow, the soap bubbles, and when they're floating in the sky, they pop, and that little stuff that floats after that, that's the image vain. The beauty that you might have is fleeting at best. And there's a whole industry waiting to take your money to preserve that beauty as long as you can or manufacture it in some way here's the thing a woman who fears the Lord has seen something and witnessed something that has allowed them to forget themselves They're witnessing a relationship that is before their eyes, that before their mind, before their heart, that is so beautiful that it causes them to think less of their beauty. It's not because they're less beautiful, but because God is so much more. And this God has said to a woman, I love you. And I love you to a degree that you could never dare to believe before. And I've loved you beyond that. It's been said that every little girl that is coming up to their daddy and shows the dress off is saying in their heart, Am I beautiful enough, daddy? For someone to sacrifice for me. And every dad is never able to answer it quite sufficiently. But Jesus did. And does. And he says to every woman in their heart who's saying to themselves, am I beautiful enough? Am I worth enough? God is saying, absolutely yes. I sent Jesus. And the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this one. And it pleased the Father to see him bruised on your behalf. So that you may know this love and forgiveness. And a woman who has encountered that, 
no longer needs social media and a thousand anonymous clicks that says, I like it. They're good because of God. And they've trained their heart to find satisfaction there. And God is pleased and allows an army of angels to encamp around such as these. And so men and children, praise the Lord. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Because in praising such women, they are praising the God who is their strength. And it is a delight. So may we fear the Lord together. Let's pray.